And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, hopefully you were able to, to garner from that, uh, we were talking with the kids there about the importance of greetings and also a little bit about the importance of not being pretentious, perhaps in our greetings as well as in our prayers. So just to prove how unpretentious I am, uh, we're going to start off with a joke. And the most unpretentious joke that I can think of, a knock-knock joke. I hope you all know how these work, right? Because you got, you've got a part to play. So we're going to give it a go here. All right. Knock, knock. Who's there? To. To. Oh. It's actually to whom? <laughs> so. Today we're here to answer that question. To whom? To whom do we pray? To whom do you pray? To whom do you address your prayers? Is it dear God? Is it dear Lord? Heavenly Father? Dear Jesus? Is it Holy Spirit? As we've observed before, many of us tend to focus at times on one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity in our personal worship and even in our prayers, even in our overall relationship with God. And this is often influenced by the tradition in which we were raised. In our discussion since the fall, through the Ten Commandments, through the Beatitudes, has brought us to this question, to whom do we pray? So let's have a look at how, how it's brought us here. Last week, we concluded our series on the law. At this point, I hope we can all see how the fall series on the Ten Commandments, on the terms of the relationship between God and his people that reflect God's character, carried us into our winter series on the Beatitudes, on the explanation of what those who fulfill those terms look like, the description of the character of those who reflect God's character. And we ultimately concluded that at the end of the day, Jesus isn't asking us to make ourselves look like that, to give ourselves a makeover. Rather, he's asking us to let him take a hold of us and transform us and make us look like beatitude people, his people, his children, citizens of his kingdom on earth as in heaven. And we concluded that Jesus taught us that we are to pray for this, to pray that God's kingdom will come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to pray that the life of heaven, the life of the place where God's will is already done, would become the life we experience here on earth, the life of the whole earth, that he would turn our upside-down world right-side-up again. So this week, we begin our new series. we got to do the drum roll. We do it every time. <laughs> Journeying together through the Lord's Prayer. Now, I was planning originally to take a break from preaching through a sermon series and just let our lectionary carry us through the season of Lent, as we did last year. But then we reached this conclusion of our series on the Beatitudes, the conclusion that praying that Jesus would transform us into Beatitude people, would make us right-side-up in an upside-down world, means 
praying that God's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as in heaven. And it became so clear that Jesus is naturally directing us to continue our journey through his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount to a place where he teaches us how to do this, how to pray through what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. And what's also interesting is that I had been talking with the table about maybe doing another series together on the Lord's Prayer at some point in the future. But it's clear they felt the same way. They came to the same conclusion. Andy's sermon on Ash Wednesday also shifted from the Beatitudes to a focus on the Lord's Prayer. So we're not officially doing another series together with the table, but it is incredible to see God continuing to point our extended church family here in Victoria in the same direction, especially considering we do both live in a part of the world where, as we observed last week, the dismissal, the ostracization, the accepted persecution of the church is growing, where this prayer is becoming a more and more desperate need. And we find ourselves now in the season of Lent, a season during which we recalibrate. We turn our focus away from the things that draw us away from God, away from the things of this upside-down world, and back to Jesus. And we ask him to make us right side up again. We turn back to Jesus and pray. So we begin our new series, Journeying Together Through the Prayer that Jesus Taught Us. As we observed with the kids, Jesus begins teaching his disciples how to pray by teaching them how not to pray, saying, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The people that Jesus was talking to were mostly Jewish believers, and prayer was a pillar of Jewish worship. People prayed to God daily in their private lives as well as during their public worship together. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. Jesus himself often prayed publicly, and he knows the value that public prayer has. What he is condemning is those pretentious displays of those, especially the religious leaders, who wanted to be seen as holy and use public prayer as a way to get attention or even to manipulate worshipers to do what they wanted them to. Jesus is saying that the essence of prayer is not about our public style. It's not about what we do, what people see us do, but about our private communication with God, even when we're praying in public. When praying in public, the focus is always on addressing God, not on how we're coming across to others or even how they're receiving the prayer or being ministered to by the prayer. That is a factor, but it is between them and God. We are speaking to God. We're not preaching. When praying in public, we should always remember that we're praying to God, not to or even just for 
people. It is certainly for their benefit. It is certainly on behalf of others. But we're praying to God. And Jesus was aware that this was a problem in Jewish worship in that day. He was also aware of the problem others problem with other prayers in his time. The empty prayers to the Greek and Roman pagan religions that worship multiple gods, that worship multiple idols. Jesus addressed this problem as well, saying, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Greek and Roman pagan prayers involved piling up as many titles of whatever god they were addressing as possible. They were a little bit pretentious in these titles, in these greetings, and they were just hoping to get someone's attention. And they would remind the god of all the favors they'd done for them, of all the sacrifices they had made to them, in an attempt to bargain with this god for the god's response on sort of contractual grounds. They also heaped up all these empty phrases through these mindless, mechanical repetition of the same words over and over. It was meant to be like a magical incantation to conjure up a response from this god. And all of this was trying to get, trying to get the god to do something for them. And that's what Jesus is addressing. He's not condemning repeating our prayers. It's not wrong to come to God many times with the same requests. Jesus encourages persistent prayer, and that's why we pray weekly for some of the same people. Over and over, we pray for them. We are persistent in our prayer that God would heal or minister to them. He's also not condemning the use of fixed prayers, like the Lord's Prayer. Now, in our uh, Anglican tradition, we do use fixed prayers in our worship, like the Lord's Prayer, as well as many others. We use quite a lot, relatively speaking. We just prayed the Collect for Purity this morning to prepare our hearts for worship. Praying fixed prayers, like the one our Savior taught us, is a good and acceptable practice. According to our catechism, Anglican worship with a structured liturgy is because of the biblical pattern that's displayed in both Testaments, and because it fosters in us a reverent fear of God. This form and structure doesn't inhibit freedom or sincerity in our worship, but rather provides a setting for those. And I've certainly found that at times, that there can be much more freedom in prayer when the pressure is taken off from having to think about what to pray for. If we are able to pray these prayers that we know Christians have been praying with us for centuries. Structured, fixed liturgical prayers also serve to direct our focus towards the firm foundation of prayer that's theologically sound and addresses God and the needs of his people. This also directs us away from a more self-centered approach of prayer, which can otherwise easily characterize our prayer. So what Jesus is saying to those of us who are in the practice of praying these types of fixed prayers together to us Anglican worshipers is, is don't just read the words, don't just repeat them from memory, don't just say them together. Jesus is saying, pray them to God. 
And while the Lord's Prayer does provide us with a fixed liturgical prayer, as the Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright suggests, it also implies strongly that we humans can and should use our ordinary language in talking to the Creator of the universe, and that He wants and intends us to do so. Now that reminds me of when I was traveling in South Africa with my friend uh, from, from school. He was not from a Christian family or a Christian background. Because we spent a lot of time with my family, he got introduced to church quite a bit. And we were staying with my grandmother, and she is a, was a devout Catholic. And um, she made him say grace. She got him to say grace. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do. He didn't know all the tricks of the trade. So he just prayed, and she loved it. Because he was really just straight up, just talking to God. And it was beautiful. And so that's what Jesus is also teaching us to do in the Lord, Lord's Prayer. And so we see that prayer can be private or public, liturgical or spontaneous. It can be out loud or it can be silent in our hearts. What the Lord's Prayer truly provides here in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is a framework. Jesus doesn't say we should always and only use the identical words of the Lord's Prayer. We see this in the version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. It's slightly different in, in interesting ways. Um, as one commentator puts it, it certainly does look as though Jesus intended this prayer to act more like the scaffolding rather than the whole building. And by teaching this prayer, just like he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout Jesus' revelation of the meaning of the law, what Jesus is drawing attention to is the motives, the intentions behind the actions. The main point of what Jesus is saying here is that effective prayer is based not just on what we pray, but on how we pray, and more importantly, to whom we pray. That our prayers are to God, for God. Not just to or for those around us. Our prayers aren't a business transaction. Our relationship with God isn't a business partnership. Jesus teaches us that our prayers are to God, for God, based on a relationship of intimacy with our Father in heaven. So Jesus said to those listening, to his close disciples as well as those who were following him, this then is how you should pray. And Jesus taught his disciples what to pray, how to pray, and to whom to pray. And he provided his disciples with this example to follow when praying that can be used as a wonderful prayer by itself, but can also simply be used as a pattern, as a structure, a scaffolding to follow in our prayers, an example of what, how, and to whom to pray. And the prayer that Jesus taught us begins with an address, which is then followed by seven petitions that are given in an appropriate order of priority. And we see that when God speaks, when he teaches, he's consistent. Like both the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer begins with a focus on loving God and then turns to a focus on loving our neighbors. The first three petitions focus on the sovereignty of God. The final four focus on the personal needs of community, of the fellowship of all believers. As we've noted, 
Jesus was teaching that what matters most is to whom we are praying. Praying to an idol will get you nowhere. Praying to the congregation will get you nowhere. And so the prayer that Jesus taught us begins with the address, Our Father in Heaven. And the first thing to note is that the prayer begins with Our Father. In fact, the first person pronouns in the prayer are all plural. They're our, we, or us. Now, if Jesus is emphasizing the importance of personal, private, the private aspect of prayer, our personal communication with God, why don't we say, my Father? The reason is that Jesus also always teaches his followers, his people, God's children, to think of themselves as living members of one body, as members of God's family, and to pray accordingly. And this is why we see that the Lord's Prayer can be used both privately and publicly as a prayer for all of Jesus' disciples, all of God's children, as a group. As we've reflected on quite a lot now this year, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the universal language of the day, sort of like English is in the Western world today. And the Greek word for father is pater, which is used to describe a biological father or parent or an elder or senior or father or the founder of a race, a forefather or ancestor. It's used once in the Bible to describe a spiritual father, but in all cases it presents an official designation of social honor, of reverence. However, we also know that when Jesus taught, when he gave his first public address, the Sermon on the Mount, in which we find the Lord's Prayer, he wasn't speaking Greek. Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, which, as some of you may know, was the everyday language spoken by Jesus and his disciples and most of those who lived in the region of Galilee and Judea in which Jesus was preaching and teaching. And some of you may know that the Aramaic word Jesus would have used for Father would have been Abba. That's a term that some of you may be familiar with. Abba was the word used by Jewish children, but also on occasion by adults, to their earthly fathers. It's a term of endearment, of warm affection that describes a secure relationship within a family, a warm, affectionate, familial bond. It's not the exact equivalent of daddy, as is sometimes popularly suggest, that is a bit misleading. Though the word does imply a very close familial relationship, it also maintains a very high degree of, of reverence and honor. It's less chummy than, uh, than daddy. But when Jewish people prayed, they, they commonly addressed God as our Heavenly Father. This was the title God that went all the way back to Exodus, where God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and so they knew of God as their father. However, the intimacy that is suggested by addressing God as Abba would have been something new to them. And so for Jesus to teach his disciples to pray in this way was exciting. Jesus was teaching a prayer for his followers, those beatitude people, that they alone can call God Abba, Father that they were being invited into the intimacy of God the Son with God the Father. 
And this further demonstrated the blessings and promises that Jesus had described in the Beatitudes, that those who followed him were adopted as children of God, and not just children, but heirs to his kingdom. And today we can receive those words with the same awe and excitement, knowing that we are invited to do the same. And it is an incredible invitation. But at the same time, it's worth remembering that it's a difficult one for many. Relationships with earthly fathers can be problematic. They can even be traumatic for a lot of people. They may be full of disappointment, pain, anger, abandonment. And this is the one of the reasons why many prefer to pray to Jesus. But as we heard in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus and his Father are one. And when Jesus revealed himself to us, he revealed the Father to us at the same time. And he revealed that our Father in heaven is not the same as our Father on earth. Our catechism teaches us that God, our Heavenly Father, is unlike our natural fathers because he is perfect in his love. He's almighty in his care. He makes no errors in judgment. And he disciplines us only for our good. And so as verses 12 to 13 of our gospel reading share, all who are adopted as God's children through faith and baptism in Christ can with a sense of peace, a sense of awe, a sense of excitement, call God our Abba, our Father in heaven. A heaven comes from the Greek word uranos, and it's described as the abode, the dwelling place, the habitation of God, as well as all his angels and the glorified spirits of those who have passed on from this life into life in heaven with God. Heaven is the realm of God's glory, his presence, his power, from which God sits on his throne and rules everything as God. Heaven exists alongside this earthly realm. But where heaven is, or what heaven is, is less the point of the prayer Jesus taught us as much as what it means that our Father is in heaven. That may cause us to ask if our Father is in heaven, and he help us on earth. It may seem like our Father is far away or removed. But that's not the case. Jesus' Jewish audience would have known full well that heaven literally meant in the heavens or all around us. They knew that God is everywhere. And God, our Father, our Abba, hears the prayers of his children and is willing to answer them. And God, our Almighty King, who sits on his throne in heaven, rules the heavens and the earth, hears the prayers and is also able to answer them. So when we pray to our Father in heaven, we are praying to the one who cares as well as to the one who is in control and has the power to answer our prayers. 
As we mentioned earlier, prayer for, for many can be simply shouting into a void on the off chance that there may be someone out there listening. But Jesus teaches us that the Lord's prayer works, not because of what we're praying or even because of how we're praying, but because of to whom we are praying. And because we are praying to our Father in heaven, everything is based on our calling God Father, just as Jesus does, as we see him do throughout his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some suggest that the title for the Sermon on the Mount could be what it means to call God Father. But we should also remember that this address to our Father is also our Father in heaven. It's to both, not one without the other. As Daryl Johnson suggests, our Father implies His will to do as we ask. In heaven implies His ability. This is to whom Jesus teaches us to pray, to our Abba Father in heaven, personal and loving, majestic and holy, worthy of our love, worthy of our praise and adoration and worship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, Abba, Father, we thank you that you have invited us into your family, into intimate relationship with you. We thank you for the privilege that you have given each of us to call you our Father. We thank you that you care enough for each of us to hear and listen to our prayers. And we praise you that you are the one who is able to answer them as you see best. And so, Father, we pray that during this Lent season, you would equip us with the strength and resolve to keep our eyes fixed on you, to turn to you in prayer, and to allow you to do your work in us and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.